The war ended now, the words of US Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking with the Foreign Minister of Latvia there in that press conference. They discussed ways to limit Russian aggression. What more can be done in terms of sanctions? The questions that they were asking back to the obvious things. No fly zones, potentially sending planes to Ukraine, potentially increasing troops in Latvia as well. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said, look, we are reviewing our global posture. We have significantly, and NATO has reinforced its eastern flank. When he was specifically speaking, some of the lines that came out of that, he said, look, one and a half million people more have left Ukraine. Many more would like to and can't. He accused and said the Russians, uh, there's been reports of Russian attacks on the evacuation corridors or humanitarian corridors, as he called them. He said that the Russians are starving out cities like Mariupol. He described it as shameful. He said all the efforts that are being made here are to end the war when he once again pushed back on a prospect of a no-fly zone. And I want to bring John Harwood in from the White House to talk about that specifically. Once again, a firm stance from Secretary Brinken, despite the request, the ongoing requests from the president of, of Ukraine to see a, a no-fly zone enacted. He said, look, we don't want to widen this war. We want to end it. That was the message. Well, that's uh, certainly the posture of the United States and its NATO allies. Uh, President Biden, by the way, is going to be having a secure uh, video conference with the leaders of uh, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, France and Germany uh, this morning to talk about their strategy. Uh, that's going to be in a little more than an hour from now. But uh, the United States and NATO do not want a direct confrontation with Russia. But what we've seen over the last uh, 12 days is a continuous widening, Julia, of the window of possibility for what the alliance is willing to do. That is, they started narrow on sanctions. As the uh, Russian butchery is laid out uh, for people around the world, uh, the willingness to tolerate greater and impose greater levels of sanctions and economic pain on Russia has increased. The same is true uh, of the uh, effort to bolster Ukrainian defenses drawing the line at the no-fly zone, don't want direct confrontation with Russia. But you do have uh, uh, arrangements in the works now to provide Soviet-era fighter jets to Ukraine via Poland with the United States uh, then supplementing the uh, supply in Poland. That is indirect ways of helping the Ukrainians do what the United States and NATO uh, are uh, not willing to cross a line to do in terms of confronting Russia directly. Yes. No sanctions on SWIFT, then they happened. The prospect of energy sanctions now being discussed. So as you said, the lines keep shifting. We'll see. John Harwood, thank you for that update there. Now let's bring you up to speed on what's happening inside Ukraine. As U.S. Secretary of State Blinken suggested in his press conference, Russia appears to target Ukrainians fleeing from combat zones as it renews its attack on key cities. Eight civilians, including two children, were reportedly killed by Russian forces in a suburb of Kiev as they tried to escape. Tense talks. Two Russian and Ukrainian negotiators meet for a third time as Ukraine brands Moscow's offer to evacuate civilians to Russia immoral. Russian tanks position themselves between apartment blocks in densely populated western Kyiv. And Putin will not stop at Ukraine. That's a warning from Lithuania as the US Secretary of State visits NATO allies in Eastern Europe, as you were just hearing there. Scott McLean is on the Ukrainian-Polish border and joins us now. Scott, that was the message, I think, from Secretary Blinken to this apparent concern that Russians are targeting these evacuation corridors. And of course, as we know, the violence seems to be escalating. Yeah, you're absolutely right, which is why so many people
And I think we may have lost Scott there. We will go back to him if we can re-establish connection for now. The big market news at this weekend was confirmation from Secretary Anthony Blinken that all sanctions are being discussed and coordinated ones at that. This, of course, Russia's biggest export. It's the number two oil producer in the world. Relatively easy, relatively easy for the US to do. They represent less than 2% of the oil that they use comes from Russia. Much harder for Europe, which relies on Russia for more than a quarter of its supplies you can see on European oil markets, Brent neared $140 a barrel overnight to near 13-year highs. As you can see, we are way off those levels now, around $120 a barrel. That was the initial knee-jerk reaction. European stock markets, though, bouncing from steep losses as oil stabilizes a little bit too. Futures are off their lowest level too. So it's a mixed bag, but it looked a lot worse around an hour ago. Anna Stewart joins me now. Interesting, Anna. Even just the mention of the prospect of this took the markets to, what, 13-year highs over the weekend, a real fear factor mm-hmm. that sanctions are coming at some point along the line. And what that really means for global oil mm. supplies. Um, incredible moves we saw this morning. But interesting that according to JP Morgan, and we spoke a little bit about this sort of last week, It's the sort of self-sanctioning we've seen actually on Russian oil already. So JP Morgan says that more than 4 million barrels per day of Russian oil is effectively already sidelined. And that's a result of refiners, traders, shippers, bankers, all just staying well clear, really, of Russian oil for a number of reasons. The potential for sanctions to come. There's also the reputational damage. And very interesting, I think, we saw Shell last week having to defend its decision to buy Russian oil at a discount um, and safety fears for ships operating in the Black Sea. So you can add all that together. Now, when we talk about what sort of sanctions we could see on oil, there is really a big spectrum here. As you said, if you were just looking at banning Russian oil imports into the US, well, that has a very limited impact for Russia and for the US. It represents just 2% uh, of all oil imports into the US. For Europe, much big impact on both sides. Europe is Russia's biggest customer by far. And then at the very end of the spectrum, full sanctions on Russian oil and gas, taking off uh, 7% of the world's oil supply. That would have huge ramifications. And I think when we look at the oil price, it's very hard to put any kind of estimate on where the ceiling would really be. Yeah, and that's part of the problem here, just one of the um, the challenges that they're facing with this decision. The other thing that we're seeing, of course, is this continued exodus of companies out of Russia and some pretty stern words from the Ukrainian government for the ones that, at least for now, are remaining. Let me just let our viewers hear this. We were upset to hear that companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's remain in Russia and continue providing providing their products. It's it's simply against the basic principles of morale uh, to continue working in Russia and making money there. This money is soaked with Ukrainian blood. Hmm. Anna, so MasterCard, Coca-Cola remaining. Some of the big credit card companies now restricting business. Yes, and in terms of the pressure on some of those companies, it's not even just from Ukraine or even uh, from people who want to see more solidarity with Ukraine. It's also actually from investors. Uh, Interestingly, over the weekend, the New York pension fund chief wrote writing to several companies, including some of the ones mentioned there, McDonald's, Pepsi, Estee Lauder, saying they should consider pausing their operations. And I think we'll see hashtag boycott, insert company trending for some days to come. 
Other companies, as you mentioned, credit card companies that already uh, suspended some operations, they're canceling all operations. This is Visa, MasterCard, American Express. Now, for Russian-issued cards, um, operating in Russia, they will still work right up to the credit card expiry. But you can imagine Russian banks will now scramble to set up new credit card facilities. Lots of reports they could use uh, a Chinese credit card. And that's to prevent people using cash. And speaking of cash, the Russian ruble hit a fresh low today, taking its value down to some, it's down some 80% on the year, which is absolutely extraordinary if you think about it. Yes. And and just to clarify, McDonald's and Coca-Cola are uh, remaining, at least for now in terms of operations in Russia. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, the United Nations estimates that at least one and a half million people have fled Ukraine since Russia began its invasion. It calls it the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. Getting out of the country is becoming increasingly difficult too. Global Guardian is an international security firm that's evacuated over 3,500 people so far. It expects to help thousands more over the next month. And joining us now is the CEO, Dale Buckner. Dale, great to have you with us. Just explain some of the challenges that you're facing and who you are, of course, who you have on the ground there that are helping people. So, Julia, the, the challenges are, of course, the environment, the logistics of evacuating we're up over 5,000 people as of this morning. So we've continued very steadily. But the challenges are the roadblocks, the high density city areas that are being bombed, of course, bridges being out, and of course, you know, brushing up against Russian forces north of Kyiv and to the east near the Donbass area in the south Crimea. So the challenges continue to ebb and flow and change, and we're changing with it. And then the teams on the ground, we have about 175 agents and bus drivers and sprinter van drivers that are executing these missions daily. We're on a 24-hour cycle, and it's a persistent rotation of missions to get those 5,000-plus people. And we think we're going to move another two to 3,000 over the next week or so. Just explain who your clients are as well, because I'm assuming they directly pay not only to have you cover them and warn them about potential risk? Because I follow your reports and over 30 days ago, you were saying, look, this looks pretty bad and perhaps people should consider leaving. Um, But I just want to make a comparison between what you're doing there and obviously what we're talking about with these evacuation corridors. It feels like they're very different things in terms of how they're handled. So, Julia, it's true. We're we're supporting the Fortune 1000 here in the U.S. in a multiple of European headquarters. Everything from tech, manufacturing, finance, uh, firms in that space. And yes, they are our clients. We are their, what they call the duty of care provider, meaning anything their clients or their employees need, if they're sick, they're injured, they need medical evac, they need security, all of those things are in our sphere. And then of course, when you have events like the Ukraine or Afghanistan, the Myanmar coup, the Turkey coup, the Paris attacks, that's when we're most active when we're in a crisis like this. And what about for those people perhaps that have family or relations or don't necessarily want to leave completely? Are you moving them to the west side, to Lviv and places like that? Or are you literally saying to them, look, you need to leave Ukraine? No, it's both. So we have moved and almost every, think about this. If you're a corporation, your duty of care is to your employee, of course, or your executive, but that extends to your family, especially under these kinds of conditions. And I would say some firms have evolved. In the initial phase, the first few days, they were focused on their their employees and their executives. 
And then, of course, as it deteriorated, it's gotten worse. I'd say within three days of the assault by Russia, we've now we're supporting family members on every single movement. Uh, and lastly, to your point, yes, there are personnel that don't want to leave the country, but they also want to get out of the city center of, of Kyiv. And we do move them to the western side in places near Lviv or, you know, slightly outside of Lviv. Have you had situations where people come, and I know it's very precise in terms of the numbers that you're taking, and you mentioned bussing people out, where they say, please, can you take someone else? Here's my friend who's desperate to leave too. Have you been presented with that situation, and, and how do you handle that? We do. So in true transparency here, if we have a 50 personnel packs bus, a bus with that is capable of filling 50 seats, and we fill 42, and we have eight available seats, and we have non-clients, we put non-clients on the bus. We also, in and around the live area, when we have buses that are st- that are stagnant, they're stable and they don't have a mission for that day. We run a free bus, basically a, su- a shuttle service, where we go and pick people up from the, the city center and the suburbs, if you will, and then take them to the border of their choosing. So we're mixing every, cap- we're trying to maximize that capacity of everything we can do for our clients. And then when we have open capacity, we offer that to your average citizen and family member. Yeah, I mean, that's the, for me, the heartbreaking part of this is you want to help everybody. Um, you operate all over the world in, in hotspots. What about Russia? Are you so we're incredibly active. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. We're, we're incredibly active in Russia. Uh, I'd say about a week ago, we flew multiple charters for clients to get them out of the way early, predicting that things would tighten up in Russia for expats and certain companies. That being said, we're now assisting people in what is left for commercial options, and we're moving people around borders and things like that. So Russia is now very active. We can we think it'll continue. And ultimately, we're trying to get ahead, just like any crisis. We're trying to get ahead before we get to the point where people might be stranded. What's your overall assessment, Dale? Because as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I, I read your daily reports and they're, they're pretty precise. You're looking at and analyzing all the intel that you've got of the situation. And a lot of you have significant military experience. What's your assessment of, of what happens here, the end game in Ukraine? Yes, I think the most likely, and I use that term very deliberate, most likely course of action, watching what's happening, I think we're now seeing Russia's true intent. They are going to take the East and Donbass and expand. They eventually will take Kyiv, whether, you know, and I I know there's a conversation about how wonderful the Ukrainians have fought and created resistance. We agree with that assessment. We think they've stalled the Russians. And I think the Russians are going to expand in Crimea up to the north, east and west. That being said, I think this is where the stalemate comes. If this remains a conventional fight, I think ultimately Russia will take those pockets. I do not think they can take and hold the entire country. I think we end up with a stagnant status quo with an insurgency. Russia will be able to claim victory as they'll have taken ground and held it. I think they clearly are willing to bomb, uh, you know, relentlessly without being precise, and they will gain ground. At that point, I would say they will not be able to hold the entire Western side. I think they'll have an insurgency, and insurgencies are expensive, and they're costly from a manpower and equipment side. So I think that's most likely. 
Worst case is this goes terribly wrong. Uh, Russia feels pressured and there is mass bombing or even the consideration of a, a tactical nuke. That's worst case. I don't believe that's their intent. I don't think that's very probable. But I say that because it needs to be in the conversation of worst case scenario if this went sideways for Russia. Yeah, particularly when you're dealing with the fallout of a humanitarian crisis at the same time. Dale, mm -hmm. thank you for bringing your wisdom and thank you for the work that you and your team are doing. Dale Buckner there, the CEO of Global Guardian. More after this. Stay with us. Welcome back and here's an update on the latest from Ukraine. There's been heavy fighting underway near the Ukrainian capital Kyiv. This video geolocated by CNN shows Russian tanks taking up positions in a densely populated area just west of Kyiv. Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky has accused the Kremlin of quote deliberate murder and is demanding new sanctions including a boycott of oil exports from Russia. This as a third round of talks between Ukraine and Russia are expected today. Now, CNN's Clarissa Ward is at Kyiv's central train station where Ukrainians are trying to flee. This is a train that is going to be taking people to the relative safety of the western city of Lviv. And it has just been a chaotic scene here for the last few minutes. People have been waiting some hours for this train. There's been a lot of arguing about who's able to get on it. You can see people are just packed in there. People were originally calling for it to be just women and children. A man tried to get on the train. People started screaming at that man. You can see over here a number of people still just trying to pack onto this train. They've got their pets. They've got their family members. These are scenes that we've seen playing out across the country, John. But we were at the train station about a week ago, and it was nothing like this scene. There is definitely an intensification, an urgency as people are trying to get out of the country, out of the city, as we're seeing this push on the northwest and western parts of Kyiv. These trains are now packed full of people who are desperately trying to get out of the city as the sense and the fear grows that Russia is sort of tightening its noose, moving down across the south and towards the southern western part of the city, which would then mean that this city is totally encircled. And the fear is that they will lay siege to it. These people, some of them have been waiting here for hours. They've been pushing, shoving, desperately trying to get out. And it's just awful to see the fear in people's eyes. They're just frantically trying to get their loved ones out. We've seen a lot of families saying goodbye to each other. There's a very real sense for a lot of these families that they might never see them again. And, and that is what feels different. And of course, it's happening at the same time as you're seeing this real intensification of the fight. That was Clarissa Ward there speaking to my colleague John Berman earlier. Neighboring Moldova has already taken in more than 230,000 Ukrainian refugees. Ivan Watson is near the Moldova-Ukrainian border for us. Ivan, good to speak to you. You're seeing the other side of this, the, the train to uncertainty. Moldova is by no means a, a wealthy nation. It's challenged of its own. How well prepared are they? How are they handling this influx of, of people? 
Well, I mean, it's it's actually a beautiful sight to see the volunteerism, the the fact that the Moldovan government has opened its doors to more than two hundred thirty thousand Ukrainians in just a week and a half. Uh, Bogdan, приходи, пожалуйста. I, I, you know, I was just talking to this young man, Bogdan from Odessa. He's twenty years old, and he just came across the border, um, and I thought it might be good to kind of hear his opinion. We can try it a little bit in English, a little bit in Russian. Uh, Bogdan, you said you were going to go to Belgium now, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, are you angry that you have to run away from your country? Yes, very angry because uh, I love my city. I won't uh, live in my city because I have a good job, a good work. I have a family in a city. And I должен просто убегать с моего города, потому что я могу не проснуться. So he says he has to, to flee from his own city because he doesn't know if he can live to the next day. Um, and he says he came in with his mother and she's going to go back into Ukraine to be with his grandmother. Uh, Bogdan, who do you blame for this? Who is the Мне кажется, верхушка российской олигархии. Люди, которым мало земли, людям, которым мало денег. Мне кажется, виной всему стоит Путин. So he says uh, it is Putin who's uh, responsible for this and the oligarchy, the elite uh, in uh, Russia, who he blames for this. And he was actually even telling me that he has relatives in St. Petersburg in Russia who don't believe what is happening in Ukraine right now. Um, I just want to show you some more of what's going on here, Julia, so that you can see what the Moldovans are doing. We're about five minutes away drive from the Ukrainian border, which is close to the port city of Odessa. It hasn't seen ground combat yet, but everybody there has heard explosions and blasts, and they know, they fear war is coming. They come, and the Moldovans bring them on vans from the border on a freezing day. It's been snowing flurries all day. And they bring them here for a hot cup of tea, perhaps some warm food, some snacks, which, you know, frankly, people are hungry and tired and, and uncomfortable. They're dragging their own uh, belongings in a single suitcase. They've got uh, kids in tow, pets that they're bringing along as well. Uh, and trying to figure out where to go next, Julia. And that's one of the biggest questions here. What, what, do you, what would you do if in a week's time suddenly you had to flee your homeland? Where would you go next? Perhaps to a relative in another country who could put you up. But what do you do longer term? Or if you're studying, if you have a job, if you have a business, these are all the questions that people are wrestling with, with the additional anxiety and fear of having loved ones like perhaps a sick grandparent or a father or a husband or a brother or several of them who've stayed behind to defend their country. Uh, I'll, one final note, I met a group of uh, workers from the Philippines from a company. They came across the border uh, today, a group of them, when Vladimir Putin in past months was swearing and lying that Russia would not invade Ukraine. There was no warning to many other countries around the world and their governments who have tens of thousands of citizens inside Ukraine. There was no warning that this would come. So we're also seeing third country nationals trying to be evacuated from countries like India, Nigeria, Sudan. I met Chinese people crossing the border today. They were not warned that this would happen and their citizens have been trapped in the war zone also trying to get out along with 
these Ukrainian families and frankly, Ukrainian children. I can't count the number of strollers I've seen with little babies coming across this border today. And it's just one day, 1.5 million plus Ukrainians have fled across that country's borders since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th. That's 12 days. Julia. Yeah, Ivan, it's unimaginable. I, I was just trying to count actually the, the push chairs and the strollers behind you, trying to take care of children in this kind of environment. Thank you for that report. Ivan Watson there. Okay, imagine trying to run a company and protect your employees while they're stuck in the middle of a war-torn country. That's the reality for the CEO and co-founder of Museumio, a company that brings history to kids by transforming museums into virtual reality experiences. Her employees are based in Kyiv, Dnipro and Kharkiv, places that have faced some of the worst violence since the war began. Her family also remains in Ukraine. Olga Kroshenko joins us now from London. Olga, I can only imagine what it feels like to be in London, to be watching what's happening, trying to take care of your family, your, your workers. How easy is it to communicate with any of them at this moment? And, and what are they telling you today? I love our kids. There is still connections that we can still talk to people. I am constantly in touch with my family. They have stable connection unless they're going into the shelters for the night or in the underground places where they can hide. Um, with my team, we are communicating for the work chat. I'm checking on them today in the places where they are now. We still cannot believe that this is the reality that we are now living with. And we are hoping for the quick resolution. We are hoping that the talks that are happening right now. Over it. We're struggling. We're we'll struggling with your connection. Stop the violence. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're struggling a little bit with your connection. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and ask you one more, and we'll, we'll keep. We'll keep persevering. Um, talk to me about your workers because. I believe they're all men, so they can't leave because they're in that age bracket that, that have to remain. What are they doing now? Are, are they prepared to fight? Uh, yes, so they are in Kharkiv, in Dnipro, in Kiev. They are ready to defend their families. They are ready to defend their houses. In Dnipro, the situation is more or less stable. There haven't been any explosions had. Like, on, like that's what my employee is telling me from where he lives. Uh, Kiev is really scary to be now, and we know that, yeah, the situation in the north is really disturbing. They are ready to defend themselves. They are ready to defend their families. They are ready to be there if the country needs them. I think for now, I'm asking them to stay careful. I'm asking them to let me know if there is anything I can do from here for them or for their families. But for now, they are not planning to flee. From what I understand. Okay, and Olga, what about your family? Because I know they were in central Kiev and you've managed to get them outside of, of, of the central location. Are you going to try and get them out of Ukraine, perhaps get across the border somehow? What are your plans there? What are you thinking? What's possible? Yeah, that's the plan. I do want to get them SAP out of where they are, to the West. Uh, especially like I'm talking about my mom, I'm talking about my grandma. 
I want them to be in safety and I want to be there for them. I will be able to meet them at the Polish border as soon as they can start making their way to the West. Right now, we don't understand how safe it is to drive or how crazy it is to even get on the train. And there is this there is this impossible choice for them, whether they stay where they are in the relative safety because they can't see the explosions, because the houses are not being ruined around them, or to try to flee and not actually know if they're going to have enough petrol, if they're going to have, if they're going to have a safe route out of where they are. This is the biggest question that we are trying to resolve every day, and we still don't know what is the best way forward. There is a huge amount of fear about trying to hit the road. And for two women, driving on their own is just an impossible choice to make because what happens if the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere or if they run out of petrol? I know. And these are the, the challenges and the problems and the fears that so many families are, are facing at this moment. Olga, for, for that those that perhaps are shocked, still not quite believing what's happened in the past three weeks. What do you want people to understand about Ukraine at this moment? And for those that perhaps in other places that could help and can provide support, why should they? I think what became very clear in the last two weeks that the Ukrainian nation is very strong and we are ready to defend our country. But we're also not just defending Ukraine, we are defending the entire democratic world against the violent aggression, against the unprovoked aggression. For people who are trying to help, there are a number of humanitarian efforts and everyone can donate some of their time, some of their resources to support at least the humanitarian crisis. We're talking about 1.5 million people, mostly women and children, who now had to leave their houses, their lives, and they're now struggling to at least get some sense of what the next couple of weeks are bringing. So I urge everyone to look for the donation points that are organized by the Ukrainian community and donate what you can. Buy a bag of nappies, bring it to the center. There are a number of newborns that are being born during the war. And these people need support now. There are already logistics in place and I think everyone needs to take an action a small action, but every single one of those is making a huge difference to Ukrainians right now. Olga, thank you. Our hearts are with you, the Ukrainian people, your family and your workers too. Olga Kravchenko, co-founder and CEO of Muzemio. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. Russian attacks on Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, are expected to sharply intensify in the coming days. Heavy shelling is reported on the outskirts of the city, sending people scrambling for cover. In the face of this terror, a moment of bravery and a song from a little girl inside a Kyiv bomb shelter. Just listen to this. When the crying stopped, video of Amelia singing Let It Go from Frozen has already been viewed on Facebook, 
more than three million times. That's it for the show. Our coverage continues. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.